Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. So we're continuing our class on Bitachon, and I wanted to dedicate this class to a Rafua Shalema, to um, Rivka Gittel Bas Yehudis, David Chaim Ben Elka, and of course, I'm sure many of you have heard that the Chief Rabbi of England, or the former Chief Rabbi of England, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, is um, battling the dreaded disease right now. And he, I want to dedicate this class to him also for Rafua Shalema, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. His Hebrew name is Yaakov Tzvi Ben Liva. And we're going to look at some of his ideas about this concept of Emunah and Bitachon, one that is right off the press, and where he talks about how he's dealing with his um, illness right now and how it is that Emunah and Bitachon has been able to give him a proper way of looking at things. So, um, basically, uh, Rabbi Sachs has battled cancer twice in his life already. He had it in his 30s, and he had it again in his 50s, and I think he's 72 today. That's what somebody told me. And um, unfortunately, the dreaded disease has returned. And somebody asked him, you know, he's written a lot of books, very prolific, and he never, ever discussed theologically his, um, you know, his uh, uh, encounter with illness and how he handled it. And somebody was asking him, you know, why is it that you never discussed this? So many other great thinkers and theologians, when they have something like this happen in their life, they usually write about it. And he basically says that he never felt the need to. Um, he says it's very simple. I saw my late father in the 80s go through four major, four or five major operations. This was not cancer. It was hip replacements and those things. And when you have operations in your 80s, he says, they sap your strength. He got weaker and weaker and as the decade, as the decade passed. He was alive for my induction, and that was very important to me. Now, he says, my late father, Olive Islam, did not have much of a Jewish education, but he had enormous emuna, enormous, enormous faith. I used to watch him saying to Hillam in the hospital, and I could see him getting stronger. It seemed to me that his mental attitude was this, and this is the bitachon piece right here. I'm leaving this to Hashem. If he sees that it's time for me to go, then it's time for me to go. And if he still needs me to do things here, he'll look after me. And Rabbi Sass continues and says, I adopted exactly that attitude. So on both occasions when I was hit by the disease, I felt if this is the time Hashem needs me up there, thank you very much indeed for my time down here. I've enjoyed every day and feel very blessed. And if he wants me to stay and there's still work for me to do, then he is going to be part of the refua. And I put my trust in him. So he continues, there was no test of faith at any point. 
just these simple moments at which to say, the yado of kidruchi, in my hands I commend my spirit, something that we say every single day, in the morning, davening, adon olam, asher malach, the yado of kidruchi, in your hands I put my spirit, and many people say this at night too, at the bedtime Shema, the Adon Olam. He says, in his hand, I place my soul. That was my thought. And since we say that every day in Adon Olam, I didn't feel the need to write a book about it. For me, it was not a theological dilemma. So, I mean, I, I know I share a lot with you about uh, is a lot with you about my mother and I couldn't help um, thinking about my mother and her own uh, encounter with the dreaded disease and the way Rabbi Sachs views things. I, I have to tell you and I've told many friends this privately but some of you may have even heard me tell it but I was with my mother when my mother was told basically that she has a very tough form of cancer. And I was in this tiny little office with her and my father who wasn't so well at the time and her doctor that they've had for I don't know how many years, many, many years. And when he told my mother, I, 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 it's hard to even believe, but talk about a primary response. What she said was, you know, much like she did in the car with her grandchildren when she said, aren't I lucky? She did the same kind of thing. She said, hooray, or aren't I lucky, or isn't that, or something like that. And both the doctor and I, you know, our, our jaws just dropped, and we were in total shock. And then she went on to say, you know, I'm so lucky. I've had such a wonderful life. I have no regrets. I feel that I really lived a full and wonderful life. And anyway, you can imagine the doctor was speechless and I started to fall my head off. And my mother turned to me with her stoic, in her stoic, no-nonsense way. And she said to me, what are you crying about? And then she said, don't cry for me, Argentina. And uh, you can imagine. And she said, Deb, don't you think I've thought of this moment before? She had had, like Rabbi Sachs, she had had two other encounters with this previous to this final sort of declaration. And she said, don't you think I've ever thought about this moment? Don't you think I've prepared myself for this moment? And, you know, regardless of what she said, you can imagine there was a puddle around me because I couldn't hardly listen to her. But I remember the doctor with his mouth still dropped open as we were leaving. He said, I have had so many patients and I cannot, I can tell you, I have never seen anybody react to news like this in the way that your mother did. And she said, both of your parents, do you know how blessed you are that you have had, had have parents with such an incredibly positive attitude? I mean, I can go on and tell you that when, at the very end, and she did live another year and three months um, once she decided that she's going to live, and we supported her through that. Even at the very, very end, when the doctor came and told her she's moving her to palliative care, 
I was not there, but my sister was. And my sister said, my mother said, yippee. And again, the doctor was in total shock. And, and my sister was like, mom, what are you talking about? And my mother said, what? It'll be nice. And you have to remember, my father had died three weeks earlier, three and a few uh, days earlier than my mother. My mother had been at my father's funeral. If you really want to hear the whole story, my mother was sitting Shiva for my brother who died suddenly the year before. And it was at the end of that Shiva that my mother had discovered that she had four broken ribs um, because of this cancer that was had ravaged her body that she had no clue about at the time. But anyway, this was what I called a ballet in three acts, the way that my parents went together and my brother, which is another story. But the point is, is what did my mother say when my sister said, mom, what are you talking about, yippee? She said, what? She said, it'll be so nice. You guys will all be together again, you know, and 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 you'll it'll be so nice. It'll be it'll be a party. You'll you'll all be there talking about me the way you were with your father three weeks ago and your brother a year ago, and it'll be so wonderful. And that was it. And and again, I don't know whether my mother suffered from disassociation, that psychologic psychological term which says that you don't you're not really in touch with your true feelings, but I really have to believe that I guess um you know, she was very um, mindful, always her whole life. And she was mindful about the end as well. And again, this is, you know, part of our homer, perhaps, but maybe something that she also worked on. But I couldn't help reading about Rabbi Sachs. And of course, having to share with you another story about my mother, not such an upbeat one, but really the same kind of primary response of just being so totally present and um, accepting, which is what Bitachon is about, accepting of whatever comes your way, of whatever the situation holds. Now, I once asked her, I said, you know, Mom, I'm not a worrier. I guess I got that from you. I guess it's in the DNA because I just don't really worry. I just, I just feel like, you know, whatever is in front of me, when it's in front of me, then I'm going to deal with it. But I'm not going to start making up things. And sometimes I think I'm stupid. Like, you know, people who worry are so imaginative, you know, and they're so creative and their intellect is constantly going. Maybe I'm just dumb. You know, I should be thinking about all the things that could happen. But my mother said, no, she said, that's the way I am. You know, I enjoy life. And if there's going to be a challenge, well, I'm going to rise to it. I'm going to meet it. I'm going to deal with it. But why should I busy myself imagining challenges that aren't there? So it's part of, you know, being in the moment. I think it's part of being present. It's part of incredible acceptance that we are not in control of what God sends our way. Even the good stuff, the good and the bad. And, um, So, and, you know, learning, like we said in, in the classes before Rosh Hashanah, to bow our heads 
in those times when we're not in control and say, Hashem Hu HaMelech, God, you are the king. You're the one that controls the history of the world, the world in all of its generalities and specifics, and my world, my personal world. I, I practiced this this week because I figured, listen, if I'm teaching this stuff, I better start doing it, right? <laughs> Easy to talk about it. So I had driven a friend to the airport this week, and my time was really tight. And as I'm coming home from the airport, and I'm not so savvy at driving myself there and back, of course, I missed the turnoff to Allen Road, which takes me home quickly, where I would have gotten home in time for my appointment. Instead, I went past it, and I said, oh, you're going to Avenue Road, right? You're going past your place. And I said, to, I said Hashem Buhamela. This is one of those occasions where it's not tragic, it's not terrible, it's a bit annoying, right? We want to kick ourselves and say, boy, am I stupid, right? What's wrong with you? But rather than do all of that, if we can just learn and practice bitachon, because it is a practice, to say, Hashem Buhamelech, I had to go the extra distance. You know, I can go the distance with you, Hashem. This is what you wanted. Let this be a kapara. Let this be a, a, a little bit of a suffering, if you like. It's fine. Let me practice acceptance of it so that I actually get credit for the mitzvah of bitachon while I do this. And I flex a muscle. I flex a spiritual muscle. Hashem Hu HaMelech, and it makes our lives so much better. And if Bitachon is the recipe for achieving greater serenity and tranquility in this world, that's what it looks like. And I'm just giving you my own personal example, because I remembered to do it, and you can do that too. And that's part of your homework for this week, okay? If you want to write me about it, if you want to... Uh, speak about it and you're not too shy something doesn't go exactly the way you want it to you know you made a mistake you didn't get somewhere on time something didn't work out Hashem Hu HaMelech Hashem is running the world and he's running my world and it's all good and like we said in those classes pre-Rosh Hashanah if we can learn to do this with the small things God willing Hashem will spare us from the bigger stuff that's not always a guarantee, but there is an idea like that. Okay. Um, so again, going back to Rabbi Sachs and my mother, we talked about how Emuna is the tree, the Rambam. Maimonides says the Emuna is the tree. Many, many people have Emuna. Many people believe in God. But the levels of their belief can be different because, you know, some people believe more, some people believe less. But what bitachon is, is how much does your behavior demonstrate that belief? When things go wrong, when things go right, how much credit do you give to the one who makes things happen? To the one who's in charge of the results, regardless of your efforts? How do you respond when things don't go the way you want? Do you get all flustered and angry and upset and nervous and anxious? 
Okay, some of that's our homeware, and obviously that's stuff we have to work on. But again, the process of getting more and more bitachon is that your behaviors should change, your responses should change. The response time to get yourself from primary to a good secondary response should become quicker, more automatic, to the point where the doctor can tell you something and you go, hooray! You know, like, wow! Or like Rabbi Sachs said, it's not an issue for me. I, I, I've been saying that every day of my life, and I mean it. It's not just lip service, as we, as we call it. It's not just pie in the sky. There were a few people that uh, contacted me after last week's class, and of course they asked me about the big questions, which is always something that we can't help thinking about when we're studying Bitachon and the idea that Hashem is in charge of everything and that nothing can happen without Hashem allowing it to happen. So, of course, people naturally go to the Holocaust, right? Well, how could Hashem do that? And, of course, we all get into that hole sometimes because it's impossible not to. We don't have to talk about the Holocaust. We can go back to Mitzrayim. We can go back to Egypt. Um, you know, there are opinions and rabbis that talk about, according to the Meforshim, the commentators, that as bad as the Holocaust was, and of course the Holocaust was so horrific, partly because we still feel its effects and we lived in the generation or a few generations and still have people who experienced it walking around. But they say that Mitzrayim was no less horrific for the Jews. And the destruction of the two temples and the Spanish Inquisition and the Holocaust. And you know what? If you want to ask about how, why Hashem lets bad things happen, you can just go to like, why was that child born with encephalitis? Why was that kid killed crossing the street? I mean, tragedy happens all the time, whether it's a tiny little one or a huge one that's totally beyond our comprehension and proportions. But it begs the same question no matter what. Right? Which is, how could God allow that? How could a good God allow that? And this is where Amuna comes in. And, and one of my friends who I was discussing this with, she said, you know what? Amuna and Bitachon are a choice. Just like we have free will, we are humans and we have free will. Part of our free will choice is to believe or not to believe. To believe that God allows these things to happen and he has a plan. And no, they don't feel good. They don't seem to be part of what you would call a loving, good God. But it's a choice to either believe or not to believe. Meaning that there are things we will never understand. And therefore, I make the choice to believe even when I don't know. I'm not God. There are things that are hidden from me, but I trust that God is good and everything that happens is part of a plan that will and is good even now, even though I can't see it. And that's a choice that a person makes because when you make the opposite choice, which is I could never believe in God, how could he allow this to do? That's also a choice. And of course, nothing makes sense when you choose that. Because a person decides whether they're going to believe or not. 
to accept not knowing everything or demanding an answer. So either you're going to believe and know that everything God, that, sorry, either you're going to make the choice that you believe and know that everything God does or allows is ultimately good. And if you decide to believe, then you'll also believe that you cannot know why and realize it's beyond your comprehension. And if you decide not to believe, then, you'll, then it, that comes from demanding an answer. And we know that there will never be an answer that will satisfy. There's no answer to satisfy us when it comes to these huge and horrible tragedies and even the small ones or what we, you know, compared to the Holocaust, somebody, you know, losing a child, God forbid. So let me just tell you, just because this, this um, shear should be in the merit of Rabbi Sachs, Rafua, and everyone else who needs one. I love his definition of emuna. We usually uh, translate emuna as belief, as faith. But listen to what Rabbi Sachs says emuna is. He says, Imuna is the ability to live with delay without losing trust in the promise, to experience disappointment without losing hope, to know that the road between the real and the ideal is long, and yet be willing to take this journey. And I added this, Amuna has been defined not as faith, but as faithfulness. Loyalty to a vision that has not yet been realized. It's the idea that even when you're walking in the dark and it's pitch black, you know that there is a, that behind the cloud, the sun is still shining. And you stay faithful to that knowledge, even when you don't see it. You know, Rabbi Tatz likes to give the analogy of being in a lightning storm and walking in the dark. And then every so often, there's a flash of lightning and the sky lights up. If you ever went to camp and you saw this happen, and it's like, it's like the lightning storm is saying, ah, there's the light, go that way. And then all of a sudden, you're plunged back into darkness again. And then the lightning comes again and lights up the sky in the middle of the dark night. And it says, go that way. That's the idea, I think, the metaphor or the image that I have of this idea. That it's being faithful to the fact that even when I don't see it, I know that the promise is there and it's going to take place. It's going to happen. So you can have a Muna. And just for those of you who, uh, I'll just say this too, and I'll, I'll say this in the memory of my mother, because this is an idea that I got from something. Um, as I said, she was an artist and she had a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, which I'm sure many of you might be familiar with. But the premise of the book is that anybody can be an artist. Anybody can learn to draw. And all they have to do is learn how to see. They have to learn how to see the way an artist sees. Meaning you have to use the right side of your brain. 
Some people are naturally right sided of the brain people, but this book posits that everyone can learn this. And basically at the beginning of the book, they have everybody draw a picture, you know, uh, draw a picture of a tree, a house, a boy and a girl and a dog. And they have these very immature pictures at the beginning because the premise is that everybody draws the same picture that they drew at whatever point in their life they stopped drawing. So if I would do this exercise with all of you here today, right? And I would say, everybody draw me a picture of a house, a dog, a boy and a girl, uh, a sky that's uh, sunny. You will draw me the same picture that you drew in grade three, okay? Or grade one, if you decided you're a lousy artist and you're never drawing again right? On my coaching course, we had to draw a picture of ourselves as a coach. And it was incredible how many people said, I didn't do it because I can't draw. I mean, I can't draw either, but I did it just because I figured who cares? I mean, it's not, this is not an art contest. But, you know, we're so insecure about that piece because we are literally arrested at that juvenile point of wherever it is that we stop drawing. Now, what the book does is it shows you how to look at things, objects, and learn how to draw the negative space. What you, what the, what, and, and I can't explain that really here on camera, but basically at the end of the book, you can imagine all these people who could only draw stick figures and juvenile drawings all draw these masterpieces by the end of the book. And, you know, there's a whole process and skills and everything that you learn of how to look, how to see. So what I do is I say, you know, this, is a parable. This is a perfect analogy for people's concepts of God. Because most people are arrested. Meaning that whatever you thought God was when you were 10, you know, like for me, I could say, you know, sitting at our Shabbos table, you know, God was an old man with a long beard who was floating over our table, right? I mean, I, I love this story. I was once with somebody whose father was a psychiatrist and we were in his office or something and he had a picture of Freud on his wall, you know, a very imposing looking picture of Freud. And his daughter said to me as a kid, I thought he was God. Freud, because whenever I'd come into my father's office, there was that picture, you know, he must be God, you know, so, so we have ideas about God that we've never gone back to so many people that we've never, you know, with an in intelligent adult mind gone back and asked the same questions. We might have asked as a kid and decided there's no answers to or we might never have asked. Because we didn't think that, that, there, that, that you did, that you're allowed to, or that it would lead us anywhere. So the point is, is Amuna, back to the idea of Amuna, there's many levels of belief based on the most immature ideas of God to the much more sophisticated knowledge of God, which should constantly be evolving and growing, right? The Rambam says, how do you know God? Well, you look around at his world and you study it. And through that alone, you are going to be in awe of the complexity of the human body, of the way of, of, a, of a tree, of a certain tiny little bug and, and how it's able to survive 
and all the different components of it that allow it to survive, right? You will be amazed. You will come to an understanding and a depth of belief in God through the study of nature, the Rumbum says. How do you know an artist, right? You see a beautiful piece of art, but you never met the artist. Well, obviously, you know, you can know something about the artist through the painting, through that expression. You know, how do you know the writer? You never met the writer, but you know something about the writer by the piece of literature that he wrote so also through that okay um so let's just go back to a working definition of bitachon and this is from rabbi Victor miller's book on emuna and bitachon he explains and this is very simple and clear bitachon means trusting that everything is in the hands of hashem but even more than that and this is from the gemara in brachos Believing whatever he does, he does for good. I'll say that again. Bitachon means trusting that everything is in the hands of Hashem. But more than that, believing that everything he does, he does for good. Um, so the person with Bitachon understands that whatever happens... <clears throat> Every detail of the history of the world and the history of every person's life is in Hashem's control. Sometimes, and we're going to get more deeply into this as we go on, sometimes what happens is in order to reward, and sometimes what happens is in order to punish or to remind us to improve ourselves. <clears throat> But whatever is being done is being done for a kindly and beneficial purpose. This is the meaning of bitachon. Okay, so going back to some of the ideas that we learned in last week's class, we want to distinguish between the natural optimist, the person who's very positive, perhaps he or she was born this way. This was part of their homer. They came out of the womb with a big smile on their face saying, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be great, right? As opposed, like we said, to the, to the other kid who comes out into the world and their homer is, ugh, nothing is good about this place. Nothing is good enough. Not, nobody does things the right way. Everybody's out to get me. Uh, you know, um, it never works out. It, whatever, right? Neither type of personality are we in charge of choosing. We were just given it. Or maybe we chose it up there in heaven before we got into this world, whatever that means. But <clears throat> the point is, is that the Chazonish in his book, Emunah and Bitachon, a rabbi who lived in Israel uh, in our generation, died, I think, in the 1940s. He says that people make the mistake of thinking that an optimistic personality, somebody who says it's going to be okay, that is somebody who is a master of bitachon. And he said that is not true. That's an optimistic personality. And that bitachon does not mean everything's going to work out. Or let's be even clearer, everything's going to work out the way I want it to. Right? That is not bitachon. Okay. <clears throat> and we can be fooled into thinking that it is. 
The second thing we talked about, like I mentioned just now, is that bitachon is a skill. And very often, it is not our primary response, unless you're like Rabbi Sachs or my mother, and perhaps they've worked on it their whole lives. But the point is, is that we don't beat ourselves up because our primary response is that we didn't have bitachon. We freaked out when, you know, the kids spilled the milk. We freaked out when our husband came home with the wrong grocery item and ruined our day, you know, and how could he pick such a mushy tomato? Like, what is wrong with him? <laughs> Whatever, okay, you can have your, you know, why are the bananas black? I mean, you know, there were no, you know, yellow ones, you know, Whatever. The point is, is let it go. Let it go and let God. This is a tiny little way of exercising bitachon. But so often we blow it. So again, the point that we made last week is your primary response is not always in your control. But your secondary response is where free will kicks in and you are responsible. And of course, as we grow and as we become greater and greater, what happens is our secondary response, which we've worked on and worked on and worked on, actually becomes our primary response. And the delay time actually becomes less and less until we just respond properly with that bitachon that we've been practicing when it's not too difficult in the small things, like missing the cutoff to the Allen Road, and okay, having to drive to the next exit, okay? Now I had no one to blame in the car, that would have upped it if my husband had missed the exit to Allen Road, right? And I said, Hashem hu ha-melech, now that's a little bit of a harder test, right? I can forgive myself, but you know, how could you do that? And I have an appointment in three minutes, right? So there, that, that makes the test a little bit more difficult, right? We all, we all can understand that. Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to go on to some, new, some more ideas now. And we're going to talk about anxiety-provoking situations. Okay, we're living in one right now. That's the pandemic that we're all in. And we all have experienced in different ways, different kinds of anxieties and worries and nervousness. And the more we, you know, listen to the news, as I've said, and the more we get into the ever-changing ideas about it, the more we can increase our anxieties and worries. But part of that is also homer. Some people are just going to, you know, be totally paranoid through this. Like I like to say from the very beginning, a lot of the ways people react to it have a lot to do with personality, right? From the very beginning, and maybe even still now, there are people who are wiping off every grocery item that comes into their house, right? Never have let their children or grandchildren into their house. And then there are others who maybe have a little more relaxed, okay? Then you have the extreme, right, who are too relaxed, we would all say, but a lot of it has to do with personality, thought processes, you know, it doesn't, it's not real, it's not going to get me, 
whatever it is, it, it, we, re, we are responding differently. But there are people whose homer is to be anxious, right? Um, and then there's other things in life called transitional anxiety, which is because you're involved in something that's provoking anxiety. Let's say somebody who's getting married, right? So you could have the pre-wedding jitters. Um, or somebody who has a decision that they have to make. They're buying a house. They're moving. They have to make a decision about, you know, whether they should move into that house or that one. So there are people who will make the decision and it could be the right decision, but they're still going to worry endlessly and ask themselves over and over again, did I make the right decision? I don't know. Did I make it? Did I make it? And again, this is part of Homer. This is, this is tough if you're that type of personality. Um, because some people are just wired to be anxious, even when they made the right decision. And, um, and Dina Schoonmaker, who is a dating expert and helps a lot of girls through the dating process, said that she once came across a piece of information that she thought was very interesting, where it's, it's sort of a, the definition is the idea that anxiety has very little to do with the quality of the decision. And she says in terms of dating, for somebody who's anxious, your emotional state at any given time does, is not always um, an indication of the quality of the relationship. For example, you could be going out with a great guy, but because you're nervous um, about getting engaged, and you start thinking up all kinds of things about maybe this guy isn't really the right one, it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with him. He might be a wonderful person and it might be a great opportunity. So sometimes when you're helping somebody through a dating process, you have to separate their anxiety from the person themselves. Everybody understand this? Okay, so just to give an, a beautiful metaphor, and I wish I had the Tehillim in front of me, but I've mentioned this before. Bitachon is like the way David HaMelech, King David, describes his relationship with Hashem. I think we say it in Hallel as well, the Tehillim in Hallel, where basically Hashem, uh, David HaMelech says, I am like a child nursing at my mother's breast. That is my level of trust in God. It doesn't matter where my mother takes me. We could be sitting in a bomb shelter. We could be in a war zone. Or we could be sitting in the most beautiful garden. Wherever we are, it's all the same to me. Because I'm the child nursing at my mother's breast. breast. And I recognize that I am not independent, that I am a part of that which is my source of life, that which is my protection and my security. And though things could change around me, nothing has changed. Now, obviously, this is a very high level, but this gives us an idea of what real bitachon is. And that's just an image that you can use for yourself. It doesn't matter what's going on around me. It doesn't matter if my mother's ducking or I'm, you know, 
I am attached to the source of life. Life in this world, life in the next world, whatever, life. Okay, so we're going to talk now about specified anxiety. So we talked about anxiety in general, transitional anxiety, when somebody's making a decision and they, it gets them nervous. Did I make the right decision? Did I not? Using bitachon to say, I made the decision. I used all of my kohos to make it. I went through everything. Now that I made it, that's it. It's over. I'm not going back there because I have bitachon that this decision was the right one, was the best one for me. Right? And Hashem, you know, is there. So we're talking now about specified anxiety. Let's say, God forbid, you yourself are dealing with an illness. Or God forbid, somebody close to you. Or there's a death in the family. Or somebody you know is struggling with something huge. Okay? So we're going to call this the mask. And the way that we're going to deal with this is by visualizing this story. And this is from Dina Schoonmaker. She was talking about how, you know, there's a certain um, age where children are terrified of masks. If you remember your own children or, you know, somebody else's children, but like Purim time, right? When everybody starts putting on masks, there's a certain age, I don't know what it is, maybe it's two, where it's like terrifying. Because just like, you know, people who, uh, kids don't have object permanence, and when the mother leaves the room, they think the mother's disappeared forever. It's that same thing, probably, right? Like, what happened? Where did the person go? The mask is terrifying. So she tells a story about her own son, who one of her kids was putting on a mask, and he was terrified. And... And what happened is, um, you know, let's say the, the little boy's sister had the mask on, and then she started talking to him through the mask, you know, saying loving things. Hi, you know, you want to go out and play? You want to do something fun? Should I make you a grilled cheese? Whatever it was. And when she talked to him through the mask, it was sort of like this process of, of, desensitization to the mask itself and realizing that behind the mask there's this voice and that the voice is not scary and so what he started doing is he would give these scary masks to different people in the house and he'd give it to his mommy and he'd say mommy talk to me through the mask so you know she'd say things like mommy loves you and Anyway, this was like this whole process where basically he became unafraid of the mask and it almost was like a game for him. And he'd give it to different family members and say, talk to me, talk to me. And he was working on his own self to sort of get rid of that hypersensitivity to his fear of the mask. So Ina Schoonmaker uses this real life example in this area of bitachon. She says, part of having bitachon is demystifying the evil. Okay? Bitachon means to demystify the evil, the fear, the sickness, the death, being single, not having children, not being able to find your partner in life. Okay? All really, really difficult things. 
She says, the idea of the mask is to take those things that we fear. Imagine the mask is a frightening mask. It's sitting there across from you, you know, on your coffee table. It's scary. And she says, we have to think that from behind that mask is the calm and loving voice of Hashem coming from behind the mask with the knowledge that Bitachon brings us that something can only happen to us if Hashem wants it to. And there's a, a saying in the Sefer, Chovot HaLevavot, Duties of the Heart, which is a very famous saying. I mean, it's obviously, but it comes up in a lot of places, that nothing can hurt me or benefit me unless God allows it to. Again, nothing can harm me and no one can benefit me unless Hashem allows it. Okay, so that sort of plays into this idea. So, the mask is the image of something that seems to have control. My fears, my worries. What if? What if not? Okay? It's an image of something that seems to have control but really doesn't. Now again, of course there's illness and there's pain and there's death and there's um, there's dreams that don't come true and there's um, feelings of, you know, disappointment, etc. These things are real, but they're made worse by my thinking they have control over me. Because nothing has control unless God gives it control. Okay, and we're going to explain that. And then if God's the one giving it control, why are we afraid? Because if Hashem is behind it, then why are we afraid? So let me give you an example of this in the Torah. So we know, we all know about Paro, who was the uh, ruler and tyrant and dictator absolute of Egypt. And we know about the Makot, the plagues. And we know that it says that Hashem hardened Paro's heart at one point, right? He lost his free will, whatever that means. Hashem hardened his heart so he would not let the Jewish people go. In other words, Paro was not in control. God was working through Paro, hardening his heart, so that no matter how horrible and horrific the plagues were, he wouldn't let us go. So at the same time that God was bringing the plagues to make Paro let us go, he was hardening Paro's heart so that he wouldn't let us go. However, the minute Hashem decided that it's time that we go, Paro no longer had any power over us. And the point was, is that the reason that Hashem was hardening Paro's heart and not letting us go was because he wasn't going to let us go until we truly cried out to him, right? 
I've said this before, it says, Vayitzak, that the Jewish people cried out. And when we cried out with this cry of Tse'aka, which is a form of tefillah, Rabbi Shimshon Pincus in his book, Sha'arim Tefillah, says there's 10 different types of crying out to Hashem. Sa'aka represents a cry that comes from deep inside of complete and utter total recognition that you are totally dependent on Hashem to get you out of this. It's kind of like the no atheist in a foxhole kind of cry. And when this happened, when we cried out like that, directly to Hashem, understanding that there's nothing else that can save us, that's when we left Egypt. That's when Paro had no more control over us. Okay. Again, the idea of realizing that Itachon means that we recognize a total dependency on Hashem and that even in the most fearful, difficult, worrisome situations, the mask that looks really horrible, behind that mask is a loving voice that says, this is for good, I love you, and this is necessary, and it's not forever, but it's part of your learning to depend on me or to recognize that everything I do is good. It doesn't always feel good. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean we like it. But it's coming from behind that mask. Behind that mask, demystifying the evil is a warm, loving voice that says, it's all good. It's because I love you, Shafala. Right? And God forbid I would ever do anything to hurt you. Right? Okay. I'm going to end here. So the idea is to remove the mask. And I'll just end with a story. And to remember that Hashem would not allow it to happen if Hashem didn't want it to. Okay, so just a quick little story about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Not this one that was just, but one of the previous ones before the last one, Rabbi Schneerson. So there's a story about uh, a previous Lubavitcher Rebbe who found himself at gunpoint. And his primary response because he was obviously a very evolved Jew, was maybe I would be scared of this person who's threatening my life if I had two gods and only one world. But I believe in one God and two worlds. So, that's the point. If I believed in two gods and only one world, I'd be shaking in my boots. But I believe in one God and two worlds. And, of course, without understanding the fact that we have two worlds, not just one, 
this is also part of the peace that helps us to understand and accept what happens to us in this world, that it's all part of a greater plan, that we're only in chapter two. We don't know what happened before we came into this world. We don't know why things have to happen in this world because of chapter three. But we know that there's more to the story than what we see here and now. Okay. You know what? We have three more minutes. I know that you're tired, but I want to end with this idea because it goes so well. And this is, again, another quote about Bitachon from Rabbi Miller's book, which I really like. It goes like this. The mitzvah of Bitachon is to know that whatever happens is being done by Hashem for a kindly purpose. You may not know what the purpose is. It may take years for you to discover. You might have to go to the next world before you discover why that happened. And of course, there are many things in Jewish history that we have a lot of questions on. But the truth of this principle is Hashem does everything only for benevolent purposes. Okay, ladies. Lots to think about. Don't forget your homework. Hashem hu hamelech in the small, easy things. Not when you're with somebody in the car who took the wrong turn, but when you're with yourself and you took the wrong turn. Okay? Don't go for the gold. Try for the bronze. Okay? Um, have a wonderful week. Have a great Shabbos. If there's anybody who wants to add anything, um, you can unmute yourselves, or I can unmute you, or can I unmute you? Otherwise, thanks, Sarah. Yeah. thanks very yes. much. Yes. It's Terry. Hi, Terry. Thanks. Okay. Anyways, uh, you can always email me if you have a question privately. Uh, Devorah Vale with an H at the end. Devorah Vale at yahoo.ca. Have a wonderful day. And a Devorah. Good day. Yes. Thank you, Devorah. Hi, Javi. Uh, can I just ask you something? The quote from Rabbi Sachs, and then you continued the quote on Amuna. Yeah. That was beautiful, but I couldn't catch it all. Would you be able to just send it out to us on uh, email so we have it word for word? So, but who do I just send it to your personal email? Or, or the app for everybody? Maybe to Terry so we can all see it. Okay, so I'll send it to Terry. And again, if anybody wants to go on that uh, app, you can email Terry at E E M A N G E L. It's Ema Angel, Ema Angel sort of okay. contracted at, um, I think it's rogers.com. At Rogers, yes. Okay, great. And if you give her your phone number, you can just be added on to that chat group. And there you'll find the recordings and you'll find uh, news about if there's going to be another class and other fun things that people send in there. And you'll be part of the Soul Sister Clanton Park chat can you repeat sorry can you repeat um her email yeah e-e-m-a yeah n-g-e-l at rogers.com there's no e on the end of the angel no it's a-n-g-e-l okay yeah Okay. And, and Thank also, you. just again, for anybody who missed it, I, I'm supposed to be getting onto jewishpodcasts.org 
Accessing Your Best Self with Devorah Vale. It should be um, up maybe this week. It had to get approved, but once it's up, it's going to be on all the different podcasts like Apple and Spotify. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about technology and I'm not doing this to become famous, but I really was excited just that it would organize my stuff because it's all over the place on the computer and I couldn't, you know, I just was going to have to bother somebody, but now they're doing it for me and, and it, you know, cost me a little bit, but it's worth it to me. And, um, and anyway, so, and then all the recordings will be there and you can tell your friends if you want to try out Devorah, she's on any of these podcast things. So, so hopefully it's, it's going to happen by the end of this week. And, um, and anyway, that's, that's about it. So have a great day. Enjoy the week. Stay calm. Thank you so much, Devorah. Thank, Thank you. So Thank you so much. Thank you, Devorah. Thank you. Thank you, Devorah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you.